This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for September 28, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. When Andrea Mitchell began her career in television journalism, there were three major networks and three evening news programs. That's not the case today. Cable networks run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, along with countless sources of news, opinions, and information across the web, smartphones, and your laptop. As NBC's chief foreign affairs correspondent and host of MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell Reports, she has covered seven presidents, traveled the world, and broke countless stories. Andrea Mitchell joins us to talk about her career and share some of her most important moments. We begin, though, with this NBC News tribute to their colleague. America is in good hands when Andrea is on the job, protecting the people's right to know. And she's done this all over the world. And the fact of the matter is all of her colleagues are in awe of her endless, endless energy and determination to get the answer that they deserve. Andrew, you go back a long way to your days in KYW in Philadelphia. The one thing that's run through your entire career in the last 40 years, you always speak truth to power. And I think if young reporters are looking for an example of what a reporter should be, it's you. You should take a look at you and your career. You're knowledgeable. You never ask questions you don't know the answers to. You've always prepared. And uh, as I said, uh, you are completely straight down the line. I've admired you for a long time, even when we disagreed. You're first rate. Like I said, I think you're the model for young reporters. We need more like you, Andrew. That was NBC News special correspondent Tom Brokaw and former Vice President Joe Biden in a montage produced by NBC News. Andrea Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us here in our C-SPAN studios. And let me begin with your career. When did you first decide that you wanted to be a journalist? I don't think I really decided, but the seeds were planted when I was 12 years old. I was chosen to be the school reporter for my elementary school in sixth grade, which meant that I wrote a weekly column for our hometown newspaper and my mother would drive me down to the you know to the newspaper building on Main Street in our town and I would go in and turn in my copy and get chewed out by the editor and I just loved to write and she the editor the only woman in the newsroom back in those days we're talking 1950s now and so I was always writing and telling stories and still thought I would grew up to become a world-famous violinist, but when that failed miserably, uh, I was headed toward journalism. Do you still play the violin? Sadly, I don't. It was when I realized I wasn't a child prodigy any longer after I got graduated from college that I really was running around the world covering so many different things, first doing local news and then 10 years later you know, joining the network and working on so many different stories that I never really got back to music. In understanding the career of Andre Mitchell, you have to understand Philadelphia, Mayor Rizzo, and KYW Radio and TV. What did you learn as a reporter covering City Hall? To stand up to bullies, not to be intimidated by power, not to get scared in a crisis, and to know that if push came to shove, you just have to resign if you're under pressure, political pressure. Thankfully, I had great news directors and station managers who stood up for me when I was under a lot of pressure from City Hall. When you applied for your first job, I believe in radio, 
What happened? What was that process like for Andrea Mitchell? It was impossible. They'd never had a woman in the newsroom. They didn't want a woman in the newsroom. I had qualified coming out of college for a management training program for then Westinghouse Broadcasting, which owned the stations, the NBC stations in Philadelphia. And they said once I was in the program that I could only go into advertising or promotion, sales promotion. I could not be in journalism. And then I finally talked them into hiring me for an entry-level job as a copy boy on the night shift. So I was working the midnight to eight shift, ripping wire copy. Teletype machines used to spew out the copy, and we would rip them and run sheets of paper to the anchor men on the all-news radio station. But it was a great training ground. As a woman in this industry, do you have more to prove in your career? I think women in all industries have more to prove. There is just a different standard. Why Most, is that? Because the power structure is a, a structure is arrayed against women. And there's always second guessing. We're not really part of the boys' club. You know, women are still the first. Condoleezza Rice is among the first uh, with the head of IBM, first women to get into the Augusta National Golf Club. And they're so grateful to be chosen as the first women to this golf club that was all male. And we're still constantly proving ourselves, even when we're working for women. There are often different standards to prove that we're up to the job. You're in Philadelphia. You apply for a job at the CBS affiliate here in Washington, D.C. Why did you want to come to our nation's capital? Because of a woman, because of Catherine Graham. She and the post-Newsweek broadcast company owned then Channel 9, and a man, Jim Snyder, one of the great news directors. He had come out of CBS News. He had produced for Cronkite. He was legendary in the business. And I was very comfortable in Philadelphia in the sense that I was at the top of my profession. I knew what I was doing. I had my sources. I was in my comfort zone. It was a wonderful community, still is. I'm still very tied to people in Philadelphia. But this was a stretch. And to go to the nation's capital and cover politics and work for a great news director, Jim Snyder, and to work for a great company, which it was only a few years after Watergate had proved itself uh, in, in history for being willing to stand up to power. And down the street on Nebraska Avenue, the NBC O&O and the Washington Bureau here in our nation's capital, how did you get that job? Really through... Another great connection from my Westinghouse days, the Washington bureau chief was a great guy, Sid Davis, and he had become the Washington bureau chief for NBC News. And at the time, Mrs. Graham was selling Channel 9, transferring the ownership to the Detroit News. And so uh, they kindly said, yeah, you've got this network offer. And frankly, I had, I guess, proved myself covering a very important trial. The governor of Maryland was on trial in Baltimore City on bribery charges and corruption charges. It was a colorful trial, and there had been enough national publicity that people at NBC had noticed my coverage. And he was later convicted. He was later convicted and then overturned by the Supreme Court on appeal. Marvin Mandel. You mentioned bureau chiefs. Tim Russert. You know, I think of him just about every day as I walk into the newsroom. 
I hear him in my ear. He's in my head. The way he balanced interviews, the way he fact-checked, his eagerness, his joy in covering the news and uncovering the news. He would greet me in the morning. I'd come into the newsroom early before the Today Show, and he'd say, hey, Mitch, what have you got? What's happening? He always was full of enthusiasm, and um, he just, we lost him too young. Has he left a void at NBC News? I think he's left a void in journalism throughout the profession nationally. Uh, His place has been taken by a lot of great people, and of course, you know, Meet the Press under Chuck has gone on to greatness and um, from strength to strength. So not in that sense. But he was a unique news leader in that he had worked on the Hill for Pat Moynihan, had worked for Mario Cuomo. So he'd worked in politics, made that transition. And as he always said, you can only do that once. You can't go back and forth and back and forth. It was an unusual transition. And he faced you know, challenges and carping you know, from the other side of the aisle at times. But he was as tough as nails on everyone. He also said that helped him frame the questions because he knew how these public officials would be answering those questions. Absolutely. I always also attributed it to the fact that he was a lawyer and that he had a Jesuit education, which I think really trained him in a a method of Socratic questioning. Just he was always asking the next question before you could even think of it. And he was a great listener. He really listened to the answers before he proceeded to the next question. He didn't stick to a script. And he was legendary for helping our anchors at every level of NBC help prepare for debates. Even when he was an executive at NBC before he came to Washington in New York, he was an executive who helped the Today Show anchors, very, very close to Tom Brokaw. So we had a lot of great mentors, but he was unique. You said something that is so important, listening. That's Journalism 101. Absolutely, but people forget it. You know, sometimes you're, you're tired or jet-lagged, you stick to a script, but the best debates, the best questions are always people who really listen, like you. Let me ask you about the state of journalism. This is what you said to Trevor Noah on Comedy Central shortly after the shooting that took place in Annapolis, a horrific shooting in that capital city. Let's listen. Do you feel that in some way Donald Trump is encouraging people to have a hateful relationship uh, with the media? I don't connect the president at all with what happened at the Capitol, at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis. That was uh, a horror, and it was completely, you know, a... I would believe someone mentally deranged who went after that organization. So I don't think it's fair to blame him for that. But I do think that he has very deliberately set up the press as the enemy of the people. I don't feel that I am the enemy of the people, and it's it's not benign. I mean, this is a... This is something that we first heard from Joseph Stalin. This is very dangerous. It undercuts democracy. And for years and years, I've covered the State Department where we try to teach and help advocate with new democracies how to train journalists and how we do journalism. Secretaries of State travel all over the world and deliberately, until more recently, 
deliberately go to Beijing, go to Turkey, go to Moscow, have press conferences, even if the host country will not, to show dictators that this is what the First Amendment means. It's very, very important. It is our value system. And I do think that by talking about fake news, fake news is what Russia did to our election, the propaganda that we see from Russia you know, invading our social media. Mm -hmm to say nothing of the hacking, but that's fake news. Propaganda is fake news, not what my colleagues at the White House and covering other beats in Washington do every day, sometimes around the world at great peril to their lives. And Andrea Mitchell, as you listen to that from Comedy Central, that debate continues in newsrooms around the country. It does, and some of my colleagues have felt threatened in the field in the past campaign and continuing. We've had incidents... There have been threats against the Boston Globe, threats against other news organizations. I think the president has improperly, unfairly, and dangerously put the press in a category, challenged the media, the way no other modern president has. The relationships have always been adversarial, and presidents from Reagan on down, you know, both Presidents Bush and President Obama and Clinton did not enjoy being questioned. There were plenty of times when I had a, a president uh, or a candidate for president, you know, pointing his or her finger at me and, you know, being aggravated by a question. But they all respected and understood the appropriate relationship between the press corps and, and the commander-in-chief or the, the president of the United States or someone running to be president of the United States. Well, the current occupant of the White House made his career through the media, in part through NBC News, using the New York media very effectively in his business dealings. So why do you think he has such animosity, the term fake news, the the tweets and the comments, and especially at NBC where he has taken you to task? I think he sees it as being useful because... If you talk to the reporters, I was not one of them in New York City. He was constantly calling and using the media, talking to the press, had relationships with a lot of the print reporters there, not only the tabloid reporters, reporters at the New York Times. So he certainly understands the media very, very well. And I think he sees that this is useful, and he's clearly on the defensive, and he's found that this is a great meme, and it is a great way to rally his base. 40 years at NBC News. Does it seem like 40? It does not feel like 40. I really am caught off guard when I see some of the old pictures, different hairstyles, (laughs) the 1980s fashions. Uh, It's pretty scary. But the fact is, it's evolved in so many ways. Every day is a new adventure. The technology obviously has changed. We used to use walkie-talkies covering Ronald Reagan on the road. You know, before cell phones, we had the most primitive computers and cell phones even on the road when I was covering the 1992 campaign on the bus tours around the country, trying to file from the road and all of the technical challenges we had with communications. So everything has changed about what we do, the velocity of information, the instantaneous aspects of it. And there are tremendous advantages. We can go around the world with miniaturized equipment and get on the air instantly. But the disadvantages are that there is really a need to take a breath, pause, think through your story. And sometimes I think we all get caught up in the latest 
shiny object you know, too immediately, and we don't pause long enough to think about what was really underlying whatever the latest distraction is. You have covered seven presidents. Let's talk about a few of them. Ronald Reagan, what was he like as a person beyond the podium, beyond the public stage? A lot of people feel that no one ever got to know Ronald Reagan, really, other than Nancy Reagan. But for those of us in the press corps, we did see there was a window into his character and into his personality, and he was just so kind and so gentlemanly and thoughtful. And I had experienced that myself. I remember one time when I was at a very contentious news conference in the height of Iran-Contra, and he called on me, and he clearly called on me. I've spoken about this recently. And um, the reporter in front of me, either winningly or unwittingly, jumped up and took the question. And at the end of the news conference, when he was almost safely escaping, Helen Thomas said, thank you, Mr. President. And before walking out, he said, well, Andrea, what is it? You were trying to ask me, I owe you a question. And I asked a question, which turned out to be a very difficult one, about Israel's secret involvement in arming Iran with American weapons, that uh, the profit of which was going to the Contras, which was beginning to unravel, of course, during that period. And he answered inartfully, and they had to issue a correction 20 minutes later. And you know, the chief of staff... Don Regan called me to chew me out uh, for putting the president in that uncomfortable position. But Ronald Reagan, as much as he was stage-managed by his very able staff, uh, certainly by some of the communication staff and the first chief of staff, Jim Baker, and the, and the rest of them, he always had his own beliefs, core beliefs. So you could say that he was trapped between the hardliners, the conservatives, Ed Meese, and other people on one side, and uh, Jim Baker and Mike Deaver on the other side. But it was he was really Ronald Reagan to the core, and that we saw that most notably with the breakthrough with Mikhail Gorbachev and the changes that came from the summit that started in 1985 and went straight through the presidency and was then led to the end of the Cold War under his successor, George Herbert Walker Bush. And along those lines, from the NBC News archives, your coverage, January 20th, 1989. At the Capitol, for the final time, hail to the chief. While orderly, constitutional transitions are abrupt, this one was softened by genuine friendship and gratitude. President Reagan... On behalf of our nation, I thank you for the wonderful things that you have done for America. An historic moment as the friends prepared to say farewell. This time, it was private citizen Ronald Reagan saluting his new commander-in-chief. And so Ronald Reagan played his final scene as president, making sure he didn't overshadow his successor, leaving center stage with style and grace leaving a capital city greatly changed by his Reagan revolution. Andrews Air Force Base, scene of hundreds of Reagan arrivals and departures. Today, a final salute for the military, who gave him some of his most painful and proudest moments. Now he joins the march of former presidents, whose memories, he once said, still brush by at the White House when the clouds are still and the moon is high. 
You can almost hear, if you listen close, the whir of a wheelchair rolling by and the sound of a voice calling out, and another thing, Eleanor. They turn down a hall and you hear the brisk strut of a fellow saying, bully absolutely ripping. Now a new memory will brush by of a natural optimist with an easy smile who always had a story to tell and knew how to say goodbye. Andrea Mitchell, NBC News, Washington. And Andrea Mitchell, as you listen to that today, what are your thoughts? You're tearing up a bit. Well, it's very evocative. People can give all the credit that is due to great speechwriters like Peggy Noonan when we were at Normandy Beach in 1984, you know, Where Are the Boys of Pointe Hawk? I mean, he had wonderful lines. But for all of those who say that he was losing his grasp, and certainly there was a diminishing of Ronald Reagan at the end of the second term, take a look at a book that was published of Love Letters to Nancy. It's written in his own hand. He wrote the most beautiful letters to his wife every night. And they are written in his script, so this is not a speechwriter's version of reality or of their marriage. And they are eloquent. They draw upon um, the great poets, the great writers. He, This was part of him. And these, this is the man who gave all of those speeches for General Electric uh, back in the days before he was even, you know, governor of California. Another president that you covered, Bill Clinton. <laughs> well, Bill Clinton complicated, but uh, that 1992 campaign was one of the great campaigns because we were on buses. We were not on airplanes, and we were stopping that bus along the way. And they... well, Let's listen to something. This is yeah. from 1992 with James Carville, you asking him questions. You see? Oh, excuse me, why draw so much attention to the letter if you're trying to get your campaign Look, back the, to the this economic is, this is, this is, this is This is the great thing that the media does. This is my favorite thing. They cover a story for three weeks. We can't get a word out. And they said, they don't cover it for a day. And they said, why are you saying something? We're off of that. I mean, that is so self-indulgent that somehow or another, you know, you go and all of this is written, and then it's out there, okay? And then they're leaking, and then the media is saying, well, the Pentagon really didn't do anything well, wrong. That's what, let me, can I finish? Okay? And, and again, let the people of New Hampshire read the letter. <laughs> that was wonderful. Classic Carville. And that was, you know, such a turning point because it was the New Hampshire primary the letter that a young Bill Clinton had written to his draft board to Colonel Holmes, and it was released and being interpreted as being uh, the letter of a draft dodger, of someone trying to get out of the draft, back when Vietnam was pretty raw. And for a pol politician to be running for president who had not served and who was you know, from that era... Uh, and being accused of draft dodging was uh, was a big deal. And that was the same primary, of course, when they were under fire because of the allegation from Jennifer Flowers of a long-term affair. And her claim, it all came to a head. And he almost lost that primary and came in second to Paul Songus, but recast himself as the victor in a way by saying you know, that he was the comeback kid on election night and went on to you know, nail the nomination, but not easily. Remember, that was a three-way race, and Ross Perot, for a good part of that race, was leading both George Bush, 41, and Bill Clinton. And uh, it wasn't at all clear who was going to win that. Was Jimmy Carter the first president you interviewed? Yes, and I was the very, very junior 
new correspondent covering energy full-time, but I was the backup to then Judy Woodruff was our great White House correspondent and the late John Palmer, whom you may well remember. And so I was the weekend person. I would go to Sunday school when the President of the United States was teaching Sunday school. I'd be the pool reporter. I was sort of the the general, you know, fill-in person going out to the South Lawn when he was either arriving or taking off on the South Lawn, and our correspondents were already deployed in the field. And occasionally, that very first Christmas, I had started in 1978, and that first Christmas, Judy was off, and I went to Plains, Georgia, and was part of the White House Press Corps uh, for the holidays. And so got to know a little bit of the Carter White House as well, and of course have covered Jimmy Carter ever since. Whether it's Jimmy Carter or Donald Trump, how does Andrea Mitchell prepare the perfect question for the moment? Sometimes in the moment sometimes based on what has just been just been uh, answered. There was that time in Aspen this summer when I was interviewing Dan Coates, the head of national intelligence, and a note was passed to me uh, that the White House had just tweeted that the president was inviting Putin to a summit, and I asked him about it. So there's no way to prepare that question except just to ask it. So you always have to be aware that you're in the news business and the news profession, and you have to be ready to pivot or go with whatever comes at you. And his response said it all. His response indicated that, first of all, surprise, that he had not been briefed, that once again the White House, the National Security Advisor, had not touched base with the National Security Cabinet on something as momentous as inviting Vladimir Putin to come to the White House after the damage that had just been done a week earlier in Helsinki at that summit. Would you consider yourself to be a trailblazer? I don't know about a trailblazer. There were very few women role models for me or mentors. But when I did get to Washington, there was Judy Woodruff, my good friend, and Leslie Stahl was covering the White House for CBS. So there were a lot of trailblazers. But we were few and far between, and we didn't have very many bosses who were women or producers or camera people who were women. So it has been incredibly reaffirming and reassuring and uh, to see the number of women who have come up and who are now, who I'm now reporting to, our executive producers at both The Today Show and Nightly News are women, and we've had a new news president who's a woman, and executive vice presidents at our, at our company and at other news bureaus. So it's been very exciting to see the progress that women are finally making in broadcast news. For those considering a career in this profession, for women graduated from colleges and universities, what advice would you give them? I would say to be really rigorous and to be smart and tough and to be kind and collegial. This is a team sport, and nobody gets anywhere in broadcast news without a whole army behind her. So don't don't ignore the people around you because they're the ones who are, if you're on the air, they're the ones who are making you look good. So I'm going to put you on the spot for a moment. The toughest person to cover consistently, who was it? You are putting me on the spot. There are so many. 
<laughs> well, name one or two. Fidel Castro. And because he was such a, a mix of characteristics. And, you know, he's a dictator. He was, he was leading a totalitarian country, but at the same time, there were vulnerabilities there, and, and he was very engaging. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, who could chew you out the minute you got a question out, you know, it was Cold War geopolitics. Ronald Reagan, because of the, again, the mix of characteristics, engaging, um, so commanding his presence, but so vulnerable in so many ways because he didn't drill down and have all the details. You had, you had to avoid the caricature and try to figure out with every president that I've ever covered what are the strengths, the weaknesses, and um, not get caught up in the fray, not get caught up with cheap shots or, or other, uh, other things that really take away from the story you're trying to tell. But the toughest person I've ever covered, it might well be... Donald Trump, with whom I've had the least amount of contact because I don't cover the White House, but trying to understand this president is a conundrum that I think is challenging the country. You have covered thousands of miles, written countless stories, and the archives full of the reporting of Andrea Mitchell. This may be a hard question, but is there one story or one moment or one event that stands out in your mind? Well, I think for all of us, 9-11, because it was life-changing. So that's not personal with me in, in any sense, more than anyone else who was uh, you know, on duty that day and in the days and decade that follows. I think back, strangely enough, to 1998 when I was in Kabul and the Taliban were still in charge, and I was on a a U.N. plane that went in with Bill Richardson, then the U.N. ambassador, and some boys approached me. The, there were no women on the streets. They couldn't be out on the streets. And some boys, teenagers, approached me, and they got in the back seat of the taxi I was in, you know, the dusty old cars that we were driving, and I was trying to get as much reporting done as I could while Richardson was in talks with the Taliban and trying to tell me about their mother who had been a high school headmaster and was secretly still teaching women. That was one of those moments where you realized that we are so isolated from the rest of the world, even those of us traveling overseas, whether we were in Baghdad during the war or I was in Kosovo and um, in Belgrade during that conflict. So as much as we travel and as much as technology has enabled us to cover the world, we, there's still so much we don't know about how other people live. And then again, perhaps a moment of promise in Ramallah covering Arafat's funeral. And we were there for quite a while for waiting as he was gravely ill. It was right after the 2004 election. So we were in November of 2004, and 
there was there were Palestinian families and leaders coming to me and saying, we need help now. This is a critical moment. And that moment passed, and our leaders blew it. The rest of the world blew it. And in watching what's happening now um, with no communication between Palestinian and Israeli leaders and with the world ignoring it and civil wars in Yemen and in Syria, I just keep thinking about what we're not doing as we understandably focus on the elections here and what lies ahead for the U.S. And finally, through all of this, a personal challenge, battling and beating breast cancer. It's a sisterhood that one never wants to join, but I am always uh, reminded of the connections. And so many of my colleagues on the air here in Washington and around the world, and how often I come across women who say, you know, that they've also experienced this. You're never over it. You're reminded of it all the time, whether it's the medications you're taking or uh, the surgery you've had or people calling and saying, do you know a good doctor? Uh, I've just had this diagnosis or the checkup that I was supposed to be having this week and I had to cancel because of other assignments here. You know, you're never over it. And so as any cancer survivor, male or female, uh, you just live with that and move on to the next challenge. Uh, Just feeling that you have to be available to anyone who needs help because it's always a shock. It's always making you feel more vulnerable on some level. Any plans to retire? No. First of all, there are too many stories to cover, too much that's happening. Life is changing so rapidly. And, you know, I'm in it as long as there are great stories and as long as they'll have me. Andrea Mitchell, Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent for NBC News, celebrating 40 years on the air. Also the host of Andrea Mitchell Reports on MSNBC. Thanks very much for being with us. It's such a great pleasure. Thank you. We all love C-SPAN. And The Weekly is, of course, C-SPAN's podcast, available wherever you download your favorite podcast on the web at cspan.org. With Andrea Mitchell, we thank you for listening. <laughs>